Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 116, President to Private Citizen, Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin. Last time, we recounted the last days of the Soviet Union after 74 years of existence and the role Boris Yeltsin played in its end. For the past six years, Yeltsin had steadfastly bashed the Soviet state, and with it, the nomenclatura culture of the Communist Party, with all of its privileges at the expense of the people. But now, at the dawn of 1992, he needed, as the philosopher Alexander Tsipko said in the newspaper Izvestia, quote, I honestly would not want to be in Boris Nikolaevich's shoes. Yeltsin the fighter and destroyer is in the past. The time of Yeltsin the creator is upon him. Still, a transformation set in quickly for him. Boris Nikolaevich, the man who railed against the opulence of the elite, became like them. The comforts he so long disdained, he embraced. His populist act well, became just that, an act. So what vision did Yeltsin have for the newly liberated Russia? Hard to say, as is evidenced by this interview with the BBC's John, Tom John Simpson, as he recounted in Timothy Colton's biography of Yeltsin. Simpson. I want to go back to what Mr. Gorbachev said recently. He was talking about Swedish social democracy. That is his model. What is your model? Yeltsin's model. Perhaps it is the model of François Mitterrand's France, or John Major's Britain, or the United States, or Japan, or Spain, or Germany. Yeltsin. I would take everything together. I would take the best from each system and introduce it to Russia. Simpson. That is a very politic answer. Mr. Gorbachev said, you must have some kind of notion, whether you want to lean to the left or to the right, to the conservatives or to the socialists, and so on. Yeltsin. Well, I've never been a conservative and have no intention of even being a centrist. No, I'm still to the left of center. Rather, I am for social democracy. Simpson. Or the Swedish model, as Mr. Gorbachev says. Yeltsin. Well, perhaps not a hundred percent. Cannot just take a model and install it ready-made. Maybe create a new model. It takes something from the Swedish model. And why not a piece from the Japanese model? An interesting piece. And from the French, too, especially as regards the parliamentary aspect. And in the United States, where they have 200 years of democracy. They have a definitive framework for this democracy. And that's interesting, too. So in principle, I'm in favor of social democracy. But nevertheless, to take the best there really is in these countries. Yeltsin brought in numerous academicians, technocrats, and theoreticians into the government to try to figure out the future direction of the country. He needed to do this as he had no clear idea of what to do, except to do everything the opposite of what the communists had done for the previous 70-plus years. His leaning, though, was a, like a Milton Friedman total free and open market system. Mikhail Friedman, no relation, one of the early Russian billionaires said of the president, quote, Yeltsin, as an individual who had inner freedom, instinctively moved towards the market as the end. That is because my namesake, Milton Friedman, said, Capitalism is freedom. 
Yeltsin thought it was necessary to give people freedom, and they would make out well. How exactly to do that, he did not know. But he did know that it was necessary to free people from control. We were squeezing them dry. He thought that if we let them go, they would move heaven and earth. This is the level on which he thought about it. He took a dim view of all the Soviet controls. He felt that the controllers had long since believed in nothing. To pull off the changes he needed, some youth in his advisory council in ministerial positions. Two men he picked early on were Gennady Berbelis from Svetlovsk as state secretary and 35-year-old Igor Gaidar. Yeltsin was ready for action as he had been as first secretaries in Sverdlovsk and Moscow. As he put it in a speech to the Russian Congress of People's Deputies and to all Russians, quote, The period of movement by small steps is over. We now need a reformist breakthrough. We shall begin in deeds and not just words to pull ourselves out of that morass that is sucking us in deeper and deeper. Boris Yeltsin fashioned himself as another great Russian reformer, Peter the Great. He mentioned in a second memoir, Notes of a President, that Peter had tried to turn the Russian people into Europeans, and that that was, quote, an ambitious goal, unattainable in one generation. He added, quote, In a certain sense, the reforms have not been completed to this day. Although we have become Europeans, we have remained ourselves. The problems with Russia still being itself, despite its Europeanization, manifested itself, as Yuri Bolton said, quote, is kind of the absence of large-scale social groups tutored in their own distinct group interests allows the administration of Boris Yeltsin to forget about our current anemic multi-parties. Basically, with upcoming multi-party elections, the Russian people had no cultural knowledge to allow them to comprehend the subject of multi-parties. Now, the first economic step in Yeltsin's plan and path to the future was price reform and the freeing of retail and wholesale price fixing by the state. On January 2nd, 1992, the reform began. On January 29th, Decree Number 65 allowed total freedom of the exchange of goods except guns and drugs. For the first time since the 1920s, capitalistic trade was legal. Yeltsin was sure that it would take six months, maybe a year, to shake out the economic issues, but this was to prove disastrously wrong. In January of 1992 alone, consumer prices were up by 296%, with the annual inflation rate coming in at a staggering 2,520%. Output of goods plummeted so much that by 1998, the real national output was lower than in 1989. Colton puts it into perspective when he wrote, quote, As downturns go, Russia's in the 1990s ranks with the Great Depression of 1929 to 1933 in the United States. But here, Timothy Colton begins to actually defend Yeltsin, as few others dared or cared to do. He makes numerous excellent arguments for the man, but also kind of swings and misses on a few others. Now, here are some of the points he makes for Boris Nikolaevich. Now, the government statistics fail to take into account 
the not-so-unsubstantial illegal and informal trade that went on throughout the country. Also, Russia fared better than many of its fellow CIS countries, actually doing far better than the average. And taking on all the USSR's debt, which, mind you, were mostly created under Gorbachev, saddled Yeltsin with an enormous burden. Another thing that was in his disservice was worldwide oil prices plummeted at the time to under $20 a barrel. Had they risen to the levels that they would in the 2000s that Putin would enjoy, Yeltsin might have pulled off the economic turnaround during his presidency instead. Now, these are but a few circumstances that the majority of Yeltsin's most fervent critics, and let me tell you, there are a lot of him. He is not a very popular person historically at this point. But what they did is they failed to recognize with some preposterously, you know, they forgot to recognize these issues here. And some actually compared his reforms to Stalin's forced collectivization of the 1930s, which I think is a bit of a reach. Now, the one criticism that Colton and I believe is justified is the general administrative deficit during his eight-year reign as the Russian leaders. Because of it, the oligarchs became wealthy, as did the Russian mafia that grew up at that time. But still, how could anyone believe that Yeltsin could have overcome a millennium of autocratic and bureaucratic rule in such a short period of time? If he had, he would have gone down as one of the greatest leaders of any country ever. A tall order for sure. You may be thinking, wait a minute, Mark. It sounds like you're ending Yeltsin's story before going on with the rest of his presidency. In a way, you're right. This is indeed the last episode about Yeltsin. His legacy, in my opinion, is still, still too fresh in the historical world to begin to do justice to the man. History is seen with very fuzzy glasses when it's too close to the present. I don't want to look at it like a far-sighted person trying to beat a, read a book up close. But before we shut the book on this phenomenal man, I'd like to come to his defense some more. The man knew that the only way to reform the system was to obliterate it. Even Gorbachev looked upon the unleashing of the marketing reforms on the economy because, as he saw it, Yeltsin was, quote, ready to take upon himself the responsibility for reforms fraught with serious social shocks and to relieve Gorbachev of it. The Russia Yeltsin left when he resigned abruptly in 1999 was vastly different than Russia had ever been. It had its own stock exchange and private banks, one of which a very close friend of mine from childhood became the president of uh, the uh, Dialogue Bank in Moscow. Now, home ownership was 60% by 2000. No longer did a Russian citizen have to stand on a long line waiting for sausages, toilet paper, cigarettes, or even vodka. Even inflation was in check by the time he left office. Yes, he made a lot of mistakes, and some of us have to think about this invasion of Chechnya, and it's a kind of a dark stain on his tenure. Uh, Yeltsin also made numerous economic and social misjudgments, but he was a flawed man, born in a flawed era, under flawed regimes, but he had the right intentions. On December 31st, 1999, eight years and six days 
after Mikhail Gorbachev resigned. Boris Nikolaevich Yeltsin, in front of television cameras, announced his resignation and the transfer of power to Vladimir Putin. Quote, I've attained the goal of my life. Russia will never return to the past. Russia, from now on, will proceed only forward. Then he went on to say, I would like to say a few words more personal than I am accustomed to saying. I want to apologize to you. I beg your forgiveness for not making many of your and my dreams come true. What seemed simple to do proved to be excruciatingly difficult. I beg your forgiveness for not vindicating some of the hopes of those who believed in one leap. With one stroke, we could jump from the gray, stagnant, totalitarian past into a cloudless, prosperous, and civilized future. I myself believed this. I thought we could overcome everything in one go. One leap was not enough to do it. I was in certain respects naive. Some problems revealed themselves to be exceptionally complicated. We slogged ahead through trial and error. Many people were shaken by these trying times. But I want you to know what I've never spoken about before and what is important for me to say today. The pain of each of you called forth pain in me and in my heart. I went through sleepless nights and torturous self-doubts about what to do so that people might live easier and better. For me, no task outweighed this. I am departing. I did all I could do. On Monday, April 23, 2007, after seven years of retirement, at 3.45 p.m., this curious man, this enigmatic and charismatic leader of a democratic Russia during a truly tumultuous time, closed his eyes for the very last time. At his funeral on the 25th, dignitaries from around the world came to pay their last respects. U.S. Presidents Clinton and Gore, George, excuse me, George H.W. Bush, Lech Walesa, German Chancellor Helmut Kohl, as well as 35 other former and current world leaders were in attendance. One man stood out, though, Mikhail Gorbachev. One of Boris Yeltsin's staunchest enemies was by his side in death. As one of the attendees noticed of Gorbachev, he, quote, stood there downcast and suddenly much older. It was evidence that he was suffering in ways that few in the hall were. Together with the life of Boris Yeltsin, a piece of his own life had been torn away. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as I end the Russian Rulers History podcast series with a story of the rise of Vladimir Putin. Now, before everyone panics, while I'm ending the Russian Rulers segment of the podcast, after three long years, this is not the end of my retelling of the story of Russia. <laughs> Far from it. After Putin, I'm going to take a little bit of a break, maybe a month or two, before I return unencumbered by the need to talk about 
just the rulers in a sequential manner. I'll be free to cover any topic I choose, and trust me, there are lots of them to look at. I've also gotten lots of fantastic suggestions from you, the listeners, on the Facebook page at Russian Rulers History. Uh, it's been great to listen to them, and there's some fantastic discussions going on right now on the page uh, that I think a lot of you would be interested in. So I'm going to also continue my blog site at www.russianrulershistory.com where you can help extend the podcast as well with a much appreciated donation. Or, you, you know, as I said, you can go to Facebook and there you can make a suggestion, ask a question, or leave a comment. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.